The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for CEOs. I am Brandon Mensinger, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going very well, Brandon. I'm just laughing because uh, the surname, again. The surname. Ayers. Ayers. Despite the why. Oh, Jesus. Did, did I, 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 I mispronounce it uh, a second time? Is that what's happening? We've just had some conversations around my surname for all of those of you catching up on this. Uh, despite the why, it's like an I. Anyhow, how am I doing today? So really excited. It's our second episode. It's starting to feel a bit real. Can't quite believe it. And thought I'd share struggles with my garden. So as many of you know, I left peak at the beginning of spring and I thought, oh, I have a bit of spare time. What I'm going to do is garden. So I've planted seeds and And from my seeds, I am growing radishes. None of my other seeds have created anything at all, radishes, and cat poo from the neighbors. Those seem to be the two things that the garden are great at producing. Okay, nice. Okay, so at least they're getting some type of vegetation, which is radishes in this case. Have you actually ate one of your radishes thus far? They're not ready yet, but they're looking promising. (laughs) They're on their way. Managed to kill the tomatoes and nothing else has sprouted in any way. So what do we have for everybody today? That is a great question. So we have our very special guest coming up in a few minutes, uh, executive search uh, guru, James Mitro. He is a a mastermind of executive search for COOs, which we'll get to. But before we get to that, a quick setting of the table between Bethany and myself here. We had a couple things to throw back and forth. And I guess the the first one was, uh, before we get to this question of how you hire a CEO, it seems quite relevant or quite useful to talk about uh, what is the real value of a CEO? It's a bit of a why question in a what format, which is what can a CEO solve? What's your take, Bethany? So this is actually an interesting topic, as you might imagine. Uh, I have been asked to talk to so many CEOs over the years to find out and help them decide whether or not they need a COO by basically talking about what it is that I do. And then you talk to different CEOs and discover that it's kind of irrelevant what I do. And what's much more relevant is what they do and also what they don't do. The CEO-CEO relationship is really around forming a great partnership. And as I mentioned, the last one, creating a complete human. So understanding where your strengths are, where their strengths lie. And it's also oftentimes not just strengths, but what gives you energy and what you love doing versus what is enervating and you hate doing. So if you can find somebody who you can partner with, who can do all of the things that you hate with joy, that is a special combination and what you should be looking for in a COO. That makes sense. So it's a bit of the the other half effect, which is your CEO has certain things that they're interested in, they like, they're good at, whatever the case might be. And you're there to really compliment and be the other half in that case is what you're suggesting. It is. And so therefore... I think this is part of why it's so hard to quantify what is a COO and what are the skills that are needed for a COO and why no two that you've ever met 
look the same or have more than maybe 60 or 70% of overlapping skills is because every single one will be different depending on what the CEO is looking for. So the second question I wanted to ask you, Bethany, was this question of when to hire a COO. So maybe you can you can kick us off and I'll give you my thoughts in response. It's interesting to specify the difference between hiring a COO and one of the co-founders being a COO. So we'll just maybe park that second question for now. And in terms of hiring, there's a difference between needing a chief of staff, so an extension to a CEO, another pair of hands, somebody who can run special projects, do a lot of the internal comms, and then getting to the point of scale where you actually need one. The world has changed so much, both with how much fundraising and how big a series A you could get and how big a business you could become. And now suddenly it's ended again. So I'm not sure always these series are the right terms. But you need to have enough scale for a COO to make sense. And that would probably be 120 people, maybe something like that. It would be the time where bringing in somebody to professionalize and prepare for the next layer of scale would make sense. What do you think? I think at the seed level, when I say seed, I'm talking about an investment where you know investment is looking at three million pounds, four million pounds, five million pounds. So there's, it's a sizable seed round. At that stage, like you said, the chief of staff makes tremendous sense to really be that extension of the CEO to really get stuff done essentially, and that makes sense. Love that. I think at the Series A level, and again, when I say Series A, I'm talking about eight million pounds, ten million pounds, something like that. So it's a decent size Series A at that point. And this is, you know, they've hit, let's say, 40 individuals in the company, 45 individuals. I think that's the right time for a CEO to come in, which is you need somebody to, to really come in to, to pair with that CEO to help grow and professionalize the business and really get it into a point where scale can truly happen on a Series B. But nothing's going to happen in that company unless that initial germination of PMF or product market fit can be really professionalized in some sense to get to that point of a Series B where things really need to, to take off if there is clarity in that Series A round around, you know, here's the strategy of the company, here's the setup to respond to, to that strategy, here's the GTM that actually makes tremendous sense, and here's a forecast that's going to get us there. That, to me, is that interpretation. And to your point, I think I'm really reeling off my, my background. And also, it makes me smile because I have traditionally joined companies around the 30-40 person mark as well, but just not as a COO. <laughs> and so I have, again, not thought about it, but very much solving the go-to-market issues. So it comes back to what kind of COO are you talking about? What problem are you trying to solve? Which uh, brings us to the next segment and our introduction for Mr. Mr. Mitra. I'm pleased to welcome James Mitra to the operations room today. James is the founder of JBM. It's an award-winning executive search firm specializing in placing COOs and GMs. James is also the host of the UK's most popular business and careers podcast, The 40-Minute Mentor. It's approaching a million downloads and features inspiring career stories and mentorship from world-class business leaders, entrepreneurs, and sporting legends. James has been recognized as a LinkedIn top voice for careers and sits on the board of three organizations, Founders, Ivy Rock Partners, and Unrest. Welcome, James. It's great to have you on the show. Now, the first question I have for you is, when the CEO of a Series A company comes to you and says, we need to hire a COO, what is your first question? Where I would typically start 
before diving into the role per se, it would be about getting a holistic understanding of where the business is currently at. So that's the the long the long term and short term strategy. Super important, I guess, particularly for a, a COO that's either going to be tasked with operationalizing and executing that strategy, or if it's a more commercial version of a COO role, sort of leading, sort of driving the growth of the business to deliver upon the strategy. So I think getting that clear in my mind early doors is is really really important, and that helps me to define the right type of COO. Then digging into the the size of the team, the revenues, the funding situation, runway, org structure, leadership team, just kind of building that picture of the organization is is critical. And really importantly, the challenges that they're facing right now, what's keeping the CEO or founder up at night. And I find by starting more high level, you, you start to get to see what type of hire is required. Is it is it a COO? Is it a head of ops or VP of ops? Is it a chief of staff? So by starting at top level and really thinking about the organization first, that for me is is a really good starting point. The other thing is given the the partnership between CEO and COO is is fundamental to the success and failure of a company. What I like to do is really get to know the CEO first. So hopefully if it's a founder that I've worked with before, that's obviously easier. But if I haven't, then really trying to understand their skill set, their experiences, where their gaps are. And it's always very telling about how self-aware a founder CEO is as to how open they are about those things. But uh, I'm sure we've met many different types over the years, but ultimately a COO should be complementary and fill the gaps in getting that cultural alignment, make sure there's going to be a good working relationship will be super important. And I guess starting from there, you then really want to dig into the type of COO that they're looking to hire in the ideal background. Some really struggle to know. And I guess that's where we come in to really ask the right questions and bring the opportunity to life. As you're talking, James, it just makes me think that you're a bit of a matchmaker. And so so it's not just about skills, but it's so much around the personality. And you're putting a lot of effort into really understanding what the CEO is like. How do you put similar effort into the COO candidates? And a slightly maybe additional question, maybe not, is what do you think about personality tests or psychometric testing as part of the process? Yes, we put exactly the same amount of effort into understanding. I mean, matchmaking is exactly the way to describe it. Fundamentally, the way that we work as a business is we we want to work with great people, great talent, and we really want to get to know them. Because if you get to really know these people, both candidates and clients alike, and you can feel fully invested in them and you know their long-term aspirations, and this goes to the CEO and founder as well. Like If we know what their exit point is, if we know what they're trying to aim towards, it helps put the context around that hire. Similarly for a, a COO, do they want to become a CEO down the line? Do they really just want to stay as COO forever, but maybe build new spikes in their skill set in, in, in their armory? Do they uh, do they really want to be part of a high growth scaling journey or would they prefer to just kind of run the business day to day, smaller SME? To, all of these things and their personal situation and their life goals all of that comes into play and I think is the art of a good headhunter is to ask the right questions and to build a really good picture of the needs of both sides of that uh, equation and then ultimately put them together at the right time with a rigorous process behind it. Assessment is a, it's a really interesting one. I don't look at it too much one way or another because it, often it is dictated by our client. If they are big believers in it and they've done it many times before, they're going to go down that route and then others hate them <laughs> and don't want to have anything to do with it. I've seen examples where it's worked brilliantly and then I've seen examples where it hasn't. I think it's probably worth talking to somebody that, that comes from that world better. But I guess 
a lot of what I try to do is to make my own opinion, but also be willing to have that changed and to get really do really good deep referencing from a broad cross section. So it's a holistic viewpoint. And I guess the way I do my job is really be long termist. So the person that I end up placing in a role one day might be someone that I've been getting to know over many years. Uh, maybe they started as a chief of staff that we placed five years ago, and now they're kind of pushing on the C-suite. So for me, it's about getting to know the best people in the ecosystem, founders and COOs alike. And, uh, and then over time, building that relationship. So at the right point, you know when to call them and when it's the perfect, you know, Brandon-shaped or Bethany-shaped opportunity. And for me, psychometric testing, I wouldn't lean on that to make those decisions. Although you could say that science is you know, important. So. I'm not against it. Lovely. So I, I just want to hit on one point you talked about a little bit earlier, which is the, the process question. And we think about, and this is kind of moving the conversation on, on a little bit, but you think about the interview structure itself and who needs to be there as part of the interview process as well. I've tried every formulation you can possibly imagine in terms of you know the number of steps, who needs to be there, the types of questions that are asked. And I haven't really locked on to one, one approach that is a better approach than another, but uh, maybe you can, you can help me here, James. Yeah. And and again, I don't think there has to be a one size fits all. I I don't, but I do think there are certain like essential steps that need to happen in that process. And and one of the first things for me is that they speak to the founder off the bat. Like the first step for me is, is a store or the CEO is that they speak like that should be the first conversation because there's no point, you know, running a search uh, without sense checking that chemistry from the off. And I would say often that that might be a bit more of an informal conversation. That might be a bit of setting the scene, probably come on to talk about it, but selling both ways is an essential part of this uh, running a, a COO or any exec process. So I would say absolutely, you know, there's going to be multiple touch points with that that hiring manager, and particularly if it's a CEO founder, and I would get that the first conversation out of the way straight away just to, to sense check. Then for me, it's incredibly important in a COO role to have the buy-in from the key stakeholders across that executive team. So I would quite quickly then get them to meet different people across the business that they'll be interacting with, you know, in their day job. And I guess that's about establishing levels of trust and credibility uh, from both sides. It's it's also helping to understand the challenges that they're facing in the business day to day and starting to think through that and gives the COO a chance to kind of tell uh, similar stories and, and show, show relevant experience, but also to help work out if they are the right fit and they have the skill set and experience to tackle the problems that they're facing. I would do that and absolutely be talking at that point to a people leader that I hope would be on the exec team anyway, which I think is super important. And then I think we've seen clients do things differently. Uh, you know, once you've you've kind of got the buy-in from those those senior leaders, I think if it's a more commercial COO, a go-to-market case type, but but I think interactive two-way type presentation with uh, key stakeholders involved uh, can be useful. But I think also it isn't required for all COO roles. I think if it's, a, if it's more you're a COO coming into a Series A business or focused really around building systems, processes, you know, scaling the business or setting the business up to scale effectively, I think it's much more important to have a really in-depth conversation about really going into depth on the problems in the business and the challenges and how you'd go about fixing them. So almost like a working session where you really get to test the chemistry and the way you work together and you see how they interact with other stakeholders. So we've seen that work to really good effect. I see. So, so just to stop you there for a second. So you prefer that versus the assignment is what you're saying? I personally do, because ultimately yeah, a lot of people are great at pulling together a, you know, an assignment 
and great at selling themselves and presenting. But I think you've got to test the working dynamics of that executive team. And I think that's a good way of doing it. Of course, getting them to go away and do some thinking and, and, and that can involve a degree of presentation and some strategy and some, some more commercial aspects. But, but actually, it shouldn't just be a stand and present situation in a Q&A. It should be interactive. It should be really getting to see the thought process and the way you react to things on the fly and just sort of, yeah, just, just making it more inclusive uh, because I think you get the best out of people that way and a chance to really sort of flex some of those muscles. I think that should also be put under uh, rigorous analysis and challenge. And I think sometimes you see, whether it's the, the commercial leader in the business or the CFO or someone being maybe a punchier stakeholder in that situation to see how you react under pressure. But that's how I've seen it work really well. Uh, and then for me, I think it's it's also getting the board involved and investors to give a different perspective and a different assessment. Of course, that's important to get their buy-in and what is often the most fundamental role to the success of an organization, in my opinion, to have that. And, and that's as much about assessing their knowledge and understanding of the founder and CEO, getting that outside in assessment and, and on the fit and the chemistry and being able to maybe pull out aspects that need probing further or, or watch outs on both sides. I think the investors should be just as honest with the COO about the reality of their experience of working with that founder CEO. And then I personally would also at some point bring in direct reports people that would be reporting into because their buy-in is super important too, to get that executional buy-in, assess their leadership capability, assess their ability to be humble and empathetic. And I'd always finish with something more informal, an informal dinner for the founder CEO to, to sell, to really cover off any outstanding questions, to, to kind of really connect further. And some of the very best processes I've seen, the founder's kind of been interjected into that process throughout every stage almost catching up after each session debriefing discussing you know again it's just it becomes a very interactive intuitive process so appreciate there's a lot of info there but for me it's really important to get it right james i just prompts one question and also comment um it's interesting when you're talking about the dinner i have been on both sides of those dinners and you're saying, oh, it's an opportunity for the founder to sell, which it completely is. But I've also seen candidates mess up at that final dinner because they forget that it's still an interview and it's not a slam dunk. And you should still treat every single interaction you have as part of the interview process because you never know that one comment that might just either get you in or get you out. So just a piece of advice for anyone listening who might be going through that process. That makes sense. So let's uh, let's riff off of that, which is our we've ran our, our pipeline, we've done our process, we found our golden candidate, and now it's the question of uh, the salary and equity bands. So when you think about um, uh, right now in what is it June twenty twenty three, what are the ranges that you can kind of uh, glean right now in terms of uh, Series A, Series B, COO? Uh, what does that salary equity band situation look like right now? I would say on the whole, at that Series A stage. On average, CRA salaries will, will range anywhere from I'd say one one thirty, you know, right up to at the the top end. It is probably pushing the high hundreds. Uh, we've seen that, and this is from benchmark data we've got from VCs. There's now some great providers, Ravio, we're a partner of, and, and others. So if, if I look at the data for the the sort of sort of post Series A phase, uh, the fiftieth percentile is about that that one forty ish, and then equity can range anywhere from 0.1% all the way up to 3-4% in an extreme. 
but I would say mostly at that Series A point, it's kind of one one percent equity, one point two. I've seen such variance on this over the years, though. I find it quite hard to be give you like absolute concrete advice because it does change. But I think getting the incentives right, uh, the holistic package is really important, and it really will depend again on the type of COO. So whether it's a commercial COO, you know, where there's there's upside in terms of uh, a bonus versus a, a more traditional BizOps COA that might be not bonused, making sure that they they have you know a decent slug of equity to incentivize them as well. So those are some perspectives, but uh, it really has ranged over the last few years. And I think the markets are correcting. And um, we've probably seen, I'm thinking about the COA searches we are running currently. It's, it's a COA Series A, almost profitable business, kind of the late stages of Series A, and that's in the high hundreds. Similarly, we placed two VP of operations into late seed pushing uh, Series A uh, in the last year, closer to the 125, 130 bracket. So you're going to see, depending on stage and industries, there is some variance there. But again, uh, a lot would depend on various different factors. And if anyone's listening to this that wants to talk comp and stuff, and for me to share benchmark data, I'm always really happy to do that. Always keen to help. So as a woman, very aware of the pay gap. Also aware when I have conversations quite often headhunters ask me what I'm expecting in the first place. I always say, doesn't matter what my expectations are. It matters what the market is paying. What advice do you give to women or to others who might not, who might be accepting less than they should? It is a tricky one and it's uh, symptomatic of the you know, many, many years of women being underpaid and this, this salary gap. And it's something that we are very keen to help rectify. Uh, my personal view is the, you know, at the start of a process, we will have a good idea of that bracket and therefore i think it's really important to be transparent up front with candidates about that and that way you have a clear expectation of lucy what it is now there is variance within that some people can you know optimize for more equity and lower base uh, there's flexibility there but i think if anybody if we're headhunting anybody for a role for a series a coo then i think more or less it'll be in and around the right stages and we would expect candidates to regardless of comp of course, if we're talking like 100k off, that it's probably the wrong type of candidate. But, but I think they're not going to be miles off that. But they might be un, have been undervalued and underappreciated in their current role. And we are very happy to help facilitate them getting to the right level. Clients can be different on this. They might want to know straight off the bat what the comp is. And you know, we are supportive of like we want to run a, a smooth process there. And we have shared in in a recent process we are running that. For now, uh, the candidate would prefer not to share the comp, but they are their expectations are in line with this process. And more often than not, we find clients are are, are accepting of that. But it is a difficult one. Um, and I'm hoping when my seven-year-old daughter is my age that we're going to have less of these conversations and there's going to be much greater parity, but there's still a lot of work to be done. It's just depressing every time the gender pay gap comes out that even reporting it doesn't actually seem to make any sort of difference. I'm looking at you, Goldman's. So one last question on pay and women and speaking to recruiters. Would you suggest that we be open with you on what our current comp is? And will you tell us if we're underpaid or do you think it's better to not share that information and say, what are we looking for? What is the role paying? And then we can have a discussion from there. Uh, Me personally, I'd be transparent because that's how I operate. My view is we tend to work with fewer people much closer to them. So wherever possible, it, it helps me to get a sense of just the holistic package as is. We will fight for our candidates to get a fair 
comp and the right comp and that's in line with the job. But it does help me to have a, a rough idea. And it's not just a rough idea of their existing practice, of you, what your expectations are going into this and also helping educate around the, the wider market and, and the different opportunities and the different, you know, different processes that we might be, be running to give, just to give you a real sense of what's what. So I, I prefer transparency just in general, but I, I do understand why sometimes uh, women in particular are, are reticent to share that. And that often might be also because they've been burnt in the past, uh, slightly more sharky uh, transactional recruiters. One thing I can say with us is that's, that's not how we operate. It's about doing right by all parties in that process and trying to get the right, uh, you know, get the right deal. And, and ultimately, if you're placing a COO into a, a startup, that re- you do not want them to start on the back foot feeling disincentivized or underappreciated. You want them to go in going, yeah, I'm going to give a the next chunk of my life to this mission. And, uh, you, you know, you really want to go in on a positive uh, starting point. So for me, getting it right is really important for everybody because we wouldn't want somebody to go in, not enjoy it, feel not engage from the off and then leave within six to 12 months because that makes everyone look bad. Yeah, got it. So then I guess uh, one other thought that occurs to me, this is like a thought slash question, which is there's nothing worse at uh, the C-suite, especially than hiring the wrong person. Once a person has been onboarded, integrated, they're actually productive and useful, and you get that feeling that uh, things are not working for a variety of reasons, your impulse usually is to, to give them more space and time to, to demonstrate their skills and provide a little more coaching and guidance and so on. The problem is by the time you've done that, you're usually a year into the role itself, potentially 18 months as an example. And at that point, you've made the hard decision that you have to now release that person from the organization. And effectively, what you've done is burned up a two-year cycle of fundraising, essentially. You know, usually in the UK, you get these standard references, which are all raw, raw references. Here are your three references. You call them, this person is wonderful for these reasons, and that's kind of your reference checks. And Back in the U.S., that's not the style. The style is much more of this kind of back-channel referencing where you know, uh, you'll know you use your network to find out more about this individual type of thing. So I guess my curiosity is your opinion on that. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I did a post on this recently and it was contentious <laughs> in terms of the response. And it is a bit of an ethical quagmire, to be honest with you. The truth is, I didn't used to do t- tons of backdoor referencing myself other than I guess getting to know a lot of people over time, like my, my main job is is relationship building of lots of people and trying to find the best of the best. And I uh, through doing that and networking, you get a lot of perspectives on great talent and watch outs and, and whatever. And my view is like with all things in life, you have to take a balanced view and nothing is gospel and you have to make up your own mind and you need to take a holistic viewpoint on, on a lot of these things. But I then realized how prevalent backdoor referencing is. You can like it or you can hate it, but it's a reality and it's not going anywhere. And so on the one side of the equation, I, you know, I know from running many, many exec searches and from talking to lots of people that, that make these moves, you know, this is incredibly time consuming, incredibly expensive at times. For me, that's worthwhile if run effectively. And there's often a huge amount of stake, particularly a COO to CEO partnership. So it's important. And therefore, my general perspective is both sides should be doing backdoor referencing, extra referencing, going even deeper on the due diligence. So it's not a one side. And yes, ideally, that would be transparent. And it would be like, okay, just so we all know, we will all do our own referencing on each other. And the key for me is that backdoor references ideally will come from trusted sources because you can trust them. And it's a way to help validate your assessment, give an alternative point of view, maybe a different angle to ask certain questions. 
but it really shouldn't be taken as gospel. We all know biases creep into to these things. This should not be to the detriment of what should be a fair and rigorous process. If somebody says this person is is awful, if you've run a fantastic process and you're pretty set on that person, especially if it's something completely unrelated to the profile that you're hiring, that should not even come into the equation. But it's important to get, for me, a well-rounded set of views. And I would encourage candidates to do the same. I really would. And it should be specific to the brief. My general feeling is it's a small world. I could swear, but I'm not going to swear. Don't burn your bridges. Be a good person. Be honest. Be transparent. Have integrity. And it's very unlikely that you'll have very bad references. Um, of course, if people are let go from organizations or there's there's certain things at play, there are multiple factors that can mean people have different perspectives on others. But more often than not, I think those backdoor references help to further validate a positive decision. And if not, they can be used as a way to help with onboarding and support and knowing where there's going to be areas to kind of work on. And so my view is it's not going to go anywhere. This is one of the major things that VCs and founders will do to like give themselves extra reassurance on a hire. And therefore, my my answer on how to level that playing field is for COOs to be doing it right back at them, not just on the founder and the exec team, but also on the VCs as well. So I'm sure there are many people who will be listening who are either thinking about their next role, thinking about becoming a COO, do you want to get people to get in touch with you? If you do, how best should they let themselves be known? Yeah, no, of course. I mean, look, we always want to work with great talent. A caveat to that is at the moment, there is, um, there's a lot of great talent on the market and there are less roles. So um, my view is always to be really transparent that we, you know, we, we, will abs- we absolutely do our utmost to talk to as many people as possible. But we also have a duty of care to be transparent. If we don't have anything, it might be that it's best to reconnect at a time where there's something tangible to speak about. We're, we're a small team. But that's why we have our, our video series, COO Secrets. That's why we have our podcast, 40 Minute Mentor, to kind of provide career advice and mentorship at scale. So that if we aren't able to spend an hour with somebody going a real deep dive, which we would do if there's a, a live opportunity, there's still ways that we can add value to anyone's search. So, but yeah, absolutely always keen to, to talk to great uh, COOs. If any founders are listening to this, yeah, COO search is, is a real sweet spot for us. Thank you, James, so much for joining us on the Operations Room. And thank you all for listening. Uh, If you are liking what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much. 